Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week is part one of a two-part series on the document Summorum Pontificum, written by Pope Benedict XVI, which is basically a document that just allows a wider use of the extraordinary form. And of course, he uses it to talk a little bit about liturgy and what it is. And uh, we will link to the document Summorum Pontificum in the show notes. And also, this is going to be the last week that we allow submissions for our Buffalo 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 contest. If you don't know what that is, listen to our Coffee Talk episode. And the person who submits the best Buffalo 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 phrase will get a free Liturgical Institute t-shirt. And also, we have a sponsor this week. Dennis, who's our sponsor? Our sponsor for this episode and an upcoming episode is Conrad Schmidt Studios up in the Milwaukee area. It's actually New Berlin, Wisconsin. And you know, the sponsorship supports our scholarship fund, so we're very happy to have it. And uh, I've worked with Conrad Schmidt myself. Uh, the, you may have heard of the John Paul II Chapel here on our campus where we commissioned 18 brand new stained glass windows that they made um, from scratch. And they do a number of things like that. They make stained glass windows. They conserve uh, historic stained glass windows. They also paint and do conservation on historic churches. And I've worked with Heidi Emery, who's the president there. She's the sweetest lady. And every time I ask her for help, she's incredibly gracious. And working with them was such a pleasure. They're really one of the leaders in the field of stained glass and uh, church and historic preservation. Nice. We take our students up there every summer. Is that correct? And yeah, whenever the students are interested, they take us through the, the studio and we see them putting stained glass windows together. When we were working on the stained glass windows, you know, Father Barron, then now Bishop Barron, went up there and we saw the windows in process and from the, the very initial sketches through the cartoon stage, which is the full-size drawing. Cartoon stage. That's what it's called, cartoon. <laughs> it's a full-size... I just imagine like St. Patrick with like a thought bubble that says like, get out of here, snakes. snakes right. <laughs> Wiley Coyote falling off a cliff. No, no, the cartoons are the full-size drawings before they actually put it into glass and then the lead putting them together and then finally delivery and you know we have a we have a sponsor which is great but i'm more happy that we have a sponsor who i really am happy to recommend every time i've worked with them they've just been really great to work with and their their artistic products quite high in quality so if you are looking to uh, do some remodeling on your church or you know a priest that is looking to get some work done uh, please look at Conrad Schmidt. And Dennis, where can they find information about it? Well, the website is conradschmidt.com, and Schmidt's a little hard to spell. Their version of it is S-C-H-M-I-T-T. So C-O-N-R-A-D, Conrad Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-T-T.com. All right. So without further ado, episode two of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Summarum Pontificum. Take it away, Dennis. Summarum Pontificum. Ten years, right? Ten years. That little ditty wouldn't have lasted ten seconds. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying ten Mozart's, years. Oh, the, the, the ten-year yeah. anniversary. Mozart's rolling over in his grave. Oh man. man. 
No, yeah, I think you, you ever hear that joke about Beethoven? Uh, this guy goes up to Beethoven's grave and he looks in there and Beethoven's sitting there with an eraser, erasing music notes and saying, what is he doing? He said, decomposing. All right. I think my liturgy, See you liturgy guys later. joke from last time was better than that. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. All right. So what about it? Well, I want to know. So I've been... A lot of what I bring up to you guys, it's like, I've been seeing this a lot on Facebook and social media, but um, I, I don't know a lot about Sumorum Pontificum. I do know that it's happened 10 years ago. I also know that it kind of created a ripple in the church. Like some people I Ripple's know... Ripple's a nice way to put it. Yeah, some people I know uh, were just like louding it, and then other people I know were saying, oh no, we're going, we're going backwards, and um, I guess I just kind of want you guys to break it open for me and... Maybe we can discuss and create a dialogue. I suspect, um, and Dennis, you say this too, that maybe we'll get uh, some people on both sides uh, angry at us, but uh, we're really just trying to angry look. already. We're trying to be like a rights-based you know, podcast here where we're just looking at what the church teaches. And that right. isn't a... R-I-T-E, not right. R-A-G-H-T-N-S. Right, the right stuff. The right rights. The right rights. The right rights. And really we, what we want to do is, uh, or I want you guys to do for me, is <laughs> take this church document uh, from Benedict the Sixteenth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of break it open and explain it to me because I have no idea. Right. People have emotional reactions to this document and the whole question of the 1962 Missal or the liturgy as it existed in the time of the council, what they often called the the Missal of John the 23rd, because he made the latest editions before it was revised. Um, but it's a motu proprio. Chris, motu proprio. It means... Hello, motu. <laughs> it's, a, it's a phone that came out. I think oh. it's one of those Star Wars characters. Motu proprio. <laughs> Han Solo. Motu proprio solo. Yeah, friends with C-3PO, motu proprio. <laughs> Chris, Chris is not amused. What kind of a lead-in is that? I don't know. We're not going to get serious here. Just say something smart, Chris. Anyway, it's a kind of document, right, that the Pope writes on his own authority. It's an insertion into law that he does on his own authority. So you can have a council where they make a big document, everybody votes. You can have a synodal exhortation or post-synodal exhortation where he confers with the bishops and then writes up what, basically what they said. But this is a thing on his own authority. But, and, uh, but it's, um, yeah, but we should say too, as he says in the motu proprio, listen, I'm not just, uh, this is not just from my own imagination. I've been praying about this, consulting the College of Cardinals, taking, uh, uh, you know, receiving uh, input from. So he's Mr. using Friend. pontifical authority. Yes. Right. And yes, that, but, that's what Simorum Pontificum means. Right. The, okay. The, uh, sol- the Supreme, the Supreme Pontiffs. Pontiffs. And he's speaking about all the other ones in the past who made. Motu proprio is about the liturgy. Who's what's the most famous one? Of course, anybody listening should know. Oh my gosh! Go, go, Jesse. You especially. Nope. Starts with a T. Oh ah, Tralles Elechitudini. Yes, Tralles Elechitudini. Pius the tenth, the first document by a pope to use and the phrase like the active participation. Best phrase to say ever. It's so fun once you actually learn how to say it, which took me probably about three months. Say it again. Tralles Elechitudini. That's it. Pretty good. Nice. Yeah, that's pretty good. He right. can so there, be taught. There are lots of motu proprios that popes make. John twenty third did, Paul the sixth did. Every pope does that for different reasons when they see a need. So what's the need of Sumorum Pontificum? Well, you know, what it doesn't say is, I like old stuff and I want it back. What he says is there's a significant division in the church. There are people attached to this who are... Um, kind of not being able to be part of the church. There are people who hate the the extraordinary form, or what he then called the extraordinary form, uh, without 
particular understanding and he wanted to heal a division in the church. That was his goal. And in fact, he, you know, the name Benedict, he took the name Benedict because he said Pope Benedict XV was a great healer of divisions after World War I. And so that, that was his goal, to heal divisions, although people often saw it as creating divisions. But he says very clearly, there are people who are attached to this older form of the right and there are people who aren't and there's rancor. And he wanted to settle the question by giving some definitive instruction. Yeah, it's the job of a pastor to help his flock to become as nourished and healthy and grow into the full stature that they were meant to uh, uh, meant to attain. Um, but the use of, uh, what is the terminology here, right? So the, the, the Missal of 1962 or oh, yes. St. John the 23rd form in the or Nova Extraordinary Form. Or those, traditional Latin Mass, people say Traditional sometimes. Latin Mass. Yeah, so those all refer to... Tridentine, to the, I've heard. Tridentine, right. That's a little bit of a misnomer, right, because of the reasons you gave, Dennis, is, is there were changes and additions, even if they were slight. You know, Tridentine refers to Trent, but all the way through... You know, through the centuries, there were changes to it, so it's not strictly speaking the Tridentine Missal. Right. But that was the last major reform after yeah. Trent in 1570, and, and Tridentum is the Latin word for Trent. So it's the Missal of the Council of Trent, just like we speak now of the Missal of Vatican II. And, and then, then there were little revisions here and there, adding new saints and taking out little tiny things, but it's fundamentally the same thing up until the Council. Okay, then the other uh, missile, now he says there's not two rites, there's two expressions of one Roman rite, but the newer missile, sometimes called the Novus Ordo, missile of uh, Paul VI, uh, ordinary form. 1970 like, missile? Yeah, something like that. So these are the two the, these, the two missiles, and they were both being used at the same time because a pastor, uh, as, as the Holy Father says, and any pastor would know, he wants to reconcile and sanctify the people. But the use of the extraordinary form, uh, the didn't really have the the guidelines and the legislation and the other guidance that um, would help it to be used uh, uh, practically. Right, and sometimes people think that just because the Samoan Pontificum suddenly there was permission for the extraordinary what we call the extraordinary form now, and there wasn't before, but there was before. John Paul II gave division. Uh, but permission. you needed to like write in like if you wanted a a, a mass in the in the old right then you needed like special permission. Yeah, it was right? more restrictive. John Paul II put out a ruling asking that pastors give generous uh, permissions. So he really wanted it. And in fact, even after the new missile came out, there were permissions given to older priests who couldn't learn the new mass to, to, that they could use the old one as long as they lived if they were unable to learn the new one or the new missile. So it was never officially gone, as, as Cardinal Ratzinger said, or as Pope Benedict said, it was never officially um, abrogated, not, never squashed. Okay. Yeah, that is another reason he mentions is it, the thinking was, you know, after the council, well, it would just be uh, older members of the faithful who would still be attached to that. But come to find out there were many more younger people who never knew uh, the mass as it was celebrated before the Council of Trent who were drawn to it. And so its, uh, uh, its use and its popularity was still something that needed to be addressed. And so he offers these guidelines to uh, really to help it to, uh, to help bishops to implement it in a more pastoral way. Right, and basically, the, the question is, you know, the missile produced after Vatican II, um, it just said didn't wasn't cel being celebrated properly. People were sort of re returning to the pre-Reformed rite in order to find a safe haven of, of um, mystery and sacredness. And um, he's got some pretty strict um, criticisms of that, of the unreformed rite as well. It's not like, oh, the old way was perfect and everything else was a mistake. He's pretty clear that the old 
older form of the right had need for significant revision. Well, let, maybe we should address those. I mean, eventually, he's the, 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 one of the takeaway expressions up from Summorum Pontificum is this concept of mutual enrichment between these two missiles. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that. and okay. I, I, that, <laughs> but, oh, I'm trying to make the missile noise. I can't do it. The missile, get it? But what, I mean, what is uh, Pope Benedict and say Wait, someone's... Wait, is that a, how do you spelling missile for that? M-I-S-S-I-L-E. Okay. M-I-S-S-I-L-E. <laughs> so but what if, I'm saying that because as soon as you start talking about which missile you ought to use and whether they should inform each other, whether the, the newer missile should have more people traditional elements you. or the I'm older right one, now. the older one should have some newer elements. People get really nervous, especially if they flocked to either one as their safe haven. Well, as a, as a kind of a, a process of hermeneutic, let's get to what is in Pope Benedict's mind. And maybe Cardinal uh, Seurat today is, a, uh, you know, he's in a position with the Congregation for Divine Worship to offer some authoritative insights right. on this. I and mean, he was appointed by Pope Francis, which I think a lot of people... I don't know, they just assume he's... Well, I thought it was Benedict, and then he just went through the transition. No, he was appointed oh. to that office by Pope Francis. Hmm. But what do... What I want to ask you, Dennis, is what are the what are the, the characteristics of the 1962 missile, pros and cons, and what do these people, Pope Benedict, Cardinal Sarasi, is the kind of the, the weaknesses and strengths of the no, Norvus Ordo? Norvus Ordo. No, Novus Ordo, yeah. Novus Ordo. Well, <laughs> Nervous. That's what I'm going to name my next son. <laughs> the, the Nervous Ordo. The Nervous Ordo. <laughs> Well, people when when people usually like the extraordinary form, if they like to go to it, they usually like the idea that the priest is facing adorientum. So, what, what they say, the back to the people, but it's really not. It's back to the people. It's his face toward God. Uh, usually, it's fairly quiet. The music is usually fairly traditional. The ceremonial itself is usually carefully celebrated and fully celebrated. And there's a kind of uh, grandeur. Uh, solemnity that makes you feel like you're doing something really important and that God is the subject of the action. Yeah, it's very transcendent, and it's obviously transcendent, I think is what uh, what many people find attractive to it. What would someone like uh, Pope Benedict or Cardinal Seurat see as maybe it, its weaknesses? Or what did the people of the liturgical movement prior to uh, the council, why, why did they feel that it needed to be uh, reformed? Well, Cardinal Ratzinger when he was Cardinal Ratzinger in 1998, uh, said that even though uh, the ancient liturgical books had this great um, veneration, because venerability, because it was so old, he said sometimes there was not much contact with the liturgy itself and the people in the pews. If, if, they, if it was at low mass and the priest was whispering and they didn't really know what he was saying, the priest was doing the curie and the people weren't. The priest was reciting something to himself that was supposed to have responses and they weren't responding. Uh, the, In fact, the, the faithful could sing unrelated songs often during the right. same time. And okay. the scriptures were read silently in Latin by the priest, and then they would maybe come out and reread them again in, in English or the vernacular. And that was an adaptation that came pretty late. So basically, the logic was it had all this transcendence, but there wasn't a lot of contact between priest and people. And Active people. participation. That's Bingo, where we get right. that. Bingo, yeah. right? And so that is the aim to be considered before all others in the reform and restoration of the liturgy. And so it, it was, and it, even in Sumorum Pontificum, uh, the Holy Father says, you know, the type of formation required to actively participate in the extraordinary form is not found very often. It requires a certain uh, measure of familiarity with Latin and other things. And so it's difficult to participate in uh, as well. And I think uh, um, the, the com- I hear them talking about the communal aspect as well was maybe uh, not as strong as it could be, uh, more of an individual relationship with the, with the person and right. to God. And but- there are people out there, as soon as you say there might have been somebody before Vatican II who didn't know what was going on at Mass, <laughs> they go berserk. Like, what about hand missiles? What about the nuns taught them to participate? 
I mean, I wasn't alive then, but you talk to people who were and they're like, yeah, I had a missile. And if I really concentrated, I could follow. But most of the time, the low mass, I had no idea what the priest was saying and where he was. Well, also, I think the other thing that people miss is that there were liturgical abuses in that right as well. Absolutely. There were sometimes priests would skip sections and, you know, different things would happen. Or they'd celebrate the... the, Mass for the Dead every single day because it was the shortest. And so you have some feast and the priest would come out in black vestments and do the Requiem Mass just because it was the quickest one. But also, I mean, I think, Chris, this is what you're getting at. Um, In order to be, you know, fully active in the liturgy, there needs to be some type of way where the the average person is going to really understand what their part in the liturgy is rather than I think the perception of well there's all this stuff happening up there and then I'm just kind of here watching it uh, yeah well go back to Trale Solicitudini God bless you thank you where Pius X inaugurates the liturgical movement kind of in official capacity on behalf of the church and he's the one who uses this term active participation this is where we're supposed to get the true uh, but not re- just active full and active right yeah well, this is where we where we uh, imbibe the true Christian spirit so that we can go out and transform the world is through our active engagement in the liturgy and so the early part of the liturgical movement was not a, not about changing the rites so much it was about changing you and me and training your kids and training others to to be able to f- be able to enter into that mystery but there were some challenges to it there it, there were some difficulties uh, uh, to that participation such so, as <laughs> well the 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 foreign language or, or not actually saying that the service would say the parts of the mass on on my behalf i wouldn't actually do it for example right and what vatican ii said in sacrosanct concilium was that one of the ways to promote active participation was not running around with clown, clown masses it was to promote people singing the responses, the chanting, the psalms, the antiphons, the canticles, the bodily gestures and um, bodily positions, and then also to have a holy silence. A holy silence would be part of their active participation instead of just keeping them busy with holy songs and Miss Mary Fitzgerald singing her Ave Maria up oh, in the loft. But she's so good at it, Dennis. Yeah, right. but you know what? Sometimes silence is the most powerful thing liturgically. All right, so let's look at the new missile then. What are its uh, strengths and weaknesses as somebody like Pope Benedict? Cardinal well, people actually expect responses where it says priest, the priest says it, and where it says people, the people answer in their language that they uh, that they speak in their living vernacular language. So that's one. That's a good thing. Scriptures aren't just recited privately at the high altar and then repeated as some kind of toleration, but they're actually theoretically, ideally proclaimed, and people have acclamations that, that they respond to. And so um, that happens particularly. And kind of the communitarian element is uh, uh, especially on display, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, reaching Mag- across aisles and yeah. holding hands and whatnot. But it, it's a, there's a much more community feel potentially to the to the new missile. What are what are the what are the weaknesses? Well, that people may not realize that they're praying to a god who's somewhere else, and if the priest is facing them and they're facing the people, that it. The, the danger is that it becomes a little club of us and we're having our meal around the community table. And that's one of the things from the seventies, that kind of family community table logic. Uh, yeah. I've heard was, that a lot that yeah. like it's uh, that the mass is a, is a meal with friends. It, it is that in a certain extent, but it's a sacrificial meal in the way that Christ's uh, Paschal mystery was meant to be perpetuated in the form of a meal. So it's not just, Hey, let's break bread together on our knees. Like that song says, um, you know, whenever you see those little bad posters and they have a, 
you know, a pita bread and a glass of wine and some grapes. It's like, no, 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 this is, this is a little more than that. This is a sacrificial meal. You're eating a sacrificed God in heaven. In the form that's, of a meal, right? <laughs> that's very different. Because from, what are the choices? You could have a body up there bleeding. So when, they, when you say that, that's like the lowest common denominator, the, the, the simplest way you can describe something that's actually immensely complex. Well, right. It's it's a way that we understand that the sacrament is proper to the nature. What does it do? It nourishes us. What does it nourish us with? Things that are, you know, okay. So, so some of the weaknesses then in the, in the celebration of the new missal is its lack of transcendence. It's too mundane, too earthly. Maybe. At least how it's often celebrated. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. a parish near us, uh, near us in Mundelein, where they celebrate the current missal of Vatican II you know, third typical edition, but they celebrate at the high altar, ad orientum, in Latin. And you almost wouldn't know that you're going to the current, uh, using the current books. And that's something that Ratzinger, Carlo Ratzinger said somewhere else. If you did that, you might not even know that you were not, uh, you have to be, what do you say, a Latinist of significant sophistication to realize that you were not attending the old form. So that continuity is very important. Well, some people call it the Latin mass. And so when they hear Latin, they just think, oh, that's the Latin mass. But Vatican II says Latin is the language of the church. And so you can celebrate the current missile in Latin if you want yeah, to, just well, as you can in Spanish or French. Yeah, or that's another another weakness that many people see is, is Latin is, is never heard and is uh, just absolutely despised or frowned upon. Uh, the lack of silence in many celebrations of, of the new missile. All right, so both missiles have some things to offer and some places right. to uh, to improve. So yeah, the so goal the goal of the liturgical movement was to address these things where they needed to be necessary, but it was never to sell out the whole sacrificial nature of the liturgy. It was to help people enter into that sacrificial nature of the liturgy and offer themselves. And if they were transformed by offering themselves, then they would transform the world and then the, all the remedies necessary for war and violence and nuclear war and all that would be addressed through the liturgy itself. All right, so before we go out though, I mean, what would this expression, mutual enrichment between between the two missiles, right? And so this is where kind of the, uh, in fact, Cardinal Seurat talks about a mutual perfecting of each of the books. Um, so the best from both of those could come together in uh, in a type of missile or type of celebration that uh, would be according to the, to the mind of the church or the Sumorum Pontificum or whatever it is. Right. And an obvious one would be, hey, we made John Paul II a saint. He wasn't a saint in 1962, so we need to have his saints proper text in the missal, for instance. Very simple one. Also, their calendar is different. The extraordinary form calendar is different from the ordinary form calendar. Saints' days are on different days. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, uh, so there's a practical yeah. way we hear Cardinal Seurat talking about you know, bringing them into a, a, a mutual perfection is, is a oneness of calendar. Uh, what else? The uh, silence, of course. Of <laughs> yeah, well, and what, what is the sacredness, the holiness, the silence? What are the good things about the extraordinary form that could be brought into the ordinary form? And, and then if there's going to be participation, if that's actually a value that the head and the members talk to each other sometimes and the people respond, that which the ordinary form values so much could be brought into the extraordinary form. Yeah, and that I think is the mind of uh, the legislator here. The mind of the author behind this is to you know is to provide for a celebration that really does sanctify the people who are engaged in it. Well, um, I I really think we could probably dive a little bit more into yeah. this, but we don't we don't exactly have a lot of time left. In fact, uh, we should go to our question, but. Um, would you guys be willing to do maybe a part two on this and maybe we could add a little bit of mutual enrichment into that too because that's something I've heard a lot and I feel like we can dive in a little deeper next week. Right. And even some of the specifics of the document itself. 
who's sure. allowed and when and all that. We should do that too. All right. Well, so I so we'll do a part two on this because I I think we just got started and I think there's some real uh, interesting stuff that we can dive into. So we'll do part two next week. But for <laughs> yeah. Right, bring your missiles with you next week. Um, not those kind, Dennis. And don't shoot uh, them at us. We're doing sh- our best to try to never explain sh- the mind of the church. Never shoot your missiles um, in the pew in front of you. But uh, I guess well, let's do a liturgy guy question, and uh, we'll see what see what we got to answer. Mail call. Mail call. Mail call. Mail call. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why no, they do have you? to hear all this twice. All right, <laughs> let's do it. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from, I'm not making this up, unconvincingly anonymous. So, uh, I'm pretty convinced of the anonymous. So anonymous I guess, we're, what do we go, Rudiger on that one? Rudiger. Is that yeah. a Rudiger? Yep. All right. So uh, Rudiger says, hey guys, my home parish has lay people purify the vessels after mass. I wouldn't normally make a big deal of it, but they aren't trained well and do it horribly. A decent amount of Jesus goes down the sink. Uh-oh. Mm. My question is, what should I do? Should I rush back there and wash them after Mass since I asked another priest to teach me how to do it? Should I talk to the priest? Should I just let it go? Thanks for answering my question. I love the podcast, and I look forward to seeing you guys in a couple years when I start my studies in Mundelein. Oh, also, yeah. Jesse mm-hmm. is the best part of the podcast. We so, oh, no. You were that making is not that there. up. Yeah. All right. All right, Rudiger. Yeah. I, think, I think you should make a big deal out of it. Yeah. There are, yeah. A, couple of, there are a couple of issues here. Yeah. Purifying the vessels is a secondary question. The primary thing is what do you do with the contents of a purified vessel. You're never supposed to pour the precious blood down the sink, certainly. You're not even supposed to pour it down a sacrarium. A sacrarium is a sink that goes directly into the ground, so it doesn't go into the sewage system. Oh, I thought, I thought. Uh, okay, I guess, yeah. But when you wash vessels with water and, and, and wash the purificators and the linens, in case there's any trace of the Eucharistic species on those, that water is supposed to go down the sacrarium and not the sink. And to never pour the precious blood down either a sacrarium or a sink. Yeah, so what should happen is the precious blood should be consumed by the priest or the deacon, I think even the extraordinary minister. But so, so that's all consumed. Then the initial purification has to be by a priest or a deacon or an instituted acolyte. Oh, they, not even a layperson. No, wow. no. The first purification has to be by priest, deacon, or instituted acolyte. And Dennis, uh, the, there had been permission for laity, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, to do that first purification, but that's not the case anymore. Right. There was an indult from the Congregation for Divine Worship in 2002, and it wasn't just, hey, now lay people can do this. It said for grave reasons, when the number of people receiving the precious blood was such that you might, you know, if you're at a big World Youth Day kind of thing, how many chalices might there be? You can't, that one priest can't be expected to you know, purify a hundred vessels. So there mm-hmm. was some permission uh, given that for temporary for three years. 
and it expired in 2005 and the, the bishops of the United States asked for an extension but it was denied and so there was an actual no more they had three years trial period the trial period is over and it's not permitted anymore so there may be people of goodwill in a parish who say oh well, we remember we were told that we are allowed to do this uh, but that period um, has expired and even then it's only for grave reasons it's not because father is um, mm-hmm. you know, wants to sit in the chair and give lay people something to do it's for a real necessity like ex- anything extraordinary extraordinary ministers for extraordinary situations yeah and I think the, the thinking behind it is is you know the care of the Eucharist is a very important thing that is a part of the priest's own identity and so it, you know if you've been in a sacristy either before or after mass very oftentimes it's a chaotic confusing place hey have these been purified yet yeah I don't know uh, I mean it, it, it's how the church expresses her care and love for the blessed sacrament that she assigns even the vessels in their purification to the priest and the deacon but after that after they've done an initial purification then uh, other other people can clean the chalices uh, more properly perhaps with soap or something like that right. But what should Rudiger do? Um, uh, discuss it with the pastor. Yeah, that'd be the best. Uh, the best thing. Always go to the go directly to the pastor. He's the he's the man in charge. And hopefully, if the pastor has the right answers, it's all settled. If not, then you can bring this information to the pastor. There's a, this question is answered on the EWTN library. So if you put in um, purification of vessels indult, you get a really nice answer by Father McNamara there. No relation. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, uh, you have news for me? <laughs> um, all right. Well, Rudiger, thank you for your question. And if you want to thank us for your answer, you can send us pie crust. Pie crust. But if anybody else here listening to the podcast wants to send us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. Send us pie crust. Mm-hmm. 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 Chris, you got anything to say? No. Great. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.